Father, I'm sure it's been a busy week for many. Please still our hearts now. May we concentrate, Lord, on you. May what you've brought John to speak on, Lord, may it it touch part of ourselves that we can understand it firstly and that we can put it into practice in some way, whatever, Lord, that you have us to do. Lord, I pray to those who have been anxious this week. I pray, Lord, for those who are feeling overwhelmed. I pray for those, Lord, whose mind has been consumed by things. Just ask, Lord, that they will melt away, my Lord, that you are the bringer of peace, a peace which passes all understanding. And I ask, Lord, that we will spend time now concentrating on you and on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Carolyn, for that. Uh, This morning we are covering, we read there the second half of chapter 19 and all of 20. This morning what we're going to cover is that second half of 19 and a little bit of 20, the idea of 20 rather than the minutiae, the, the, the detail of 20. Uh, so if you've come this morning wondering if we're going to cover the millennium or if you're post-millennium, pre-millennial, a-millennial, all the millennials, uh, you're going to be disappointed today, but come back in a, in a couple of weeks and we'll look at that in a couple of weeks' time. So you know the way I like good old, a good old lyric, a good old song lyric. I'm going to give you one this morning to begin with. Uh, And it's this. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake. Can anyone name that tune? That's the one, Jude Turner. That's the one. A little bit out of... You're probably very familiar with those words, even though they're a a little bit out of season. But what we do when we sing those words... uh, What we're doing when we sing those words is that we are giving divine attributes, divine attributes to a certain old, fat, gray-haired man. No, not me. Uh, Just so you know. The divine attributes that we place on this man are these. Omniscience. That's a fancy theological word that means all-knowing. Now, I know some of you in here think that's you. It's not. Some of you think you are omniscient. You're not. We place those divine attributes on that man. He's all-knowing. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. There's another one we place on that man when we sing that song, and it's omnipresence. That means that He is everywhere at the one time. That cannot be so. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Did you ever hear such a creepy song in all your life? Like, kids sing this. You know, like, whoo, right? Uh, But we give these divine attributes to this person. 
And the reality is the only one who has these divine attributes to have this nature is God alone. To see everything, to know everything, is God alone. And what we have at the beginning of the passage that we look at today is this very nature of Jesus, the very nature of Jesus explained. What we see here in, in, in the first verse, John sees the heavens opened and a white horse with this glorious rider. And he says that the rider is faithful and true. And that, that takes us back to Revelation 3.14, where Jesus describes himself as the faithful and true witness. And what that means is that he sees it all, he knows it all. He cuts through all the deceit, all the pretensions, all the self-deception. He speaks truth, and he knows truth, and he judges rightly. If we were to summarize it, we would say this. We would just say this. Jesus sees it all. There's a wee thing we do in our house when it suits us. I say when it suits us, that when someone else is maybe not telling the complete truth, let's just say, we like to remind each other, Jesus doesn't like lying. Jesus sees you. It's usually the kids to me and Julie. But uh, that's the reality. Jesus sees all. He is the only true witness. If that's the case, he's the only one who can judge righteously. So John continues to describe him. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's the only one that can judge accurately. See, the reality is, even in our human courts, even in the courts in this land and the courts in other lands, human courts, there are decisions that are made that are wrong. Sometimes the innocent are condemned and sometimes the guilty are set free. That's human error. I don't know if you saw the story this last couple of weeks in the news about uh, this. There was a transgender uh, person who was convicted of rape, and they were placed in a woman's prison until somebody cottoned on that that might not be the best idea. That's the world we're living in, folks. This is the world we're living in, where decisions are made in courts by judges and juries that are wrong. Not with Jesus. Not with Jesus. Every judgment He makes Everything he says is true. Everything he says is true. You know, when a country goes to war, it says here, he, he judges and he makes war. We know when any country goes to war, there are always questions about, well, that, that war is a just war. And I don't want to get into just war theory this morning. But uh, there's, there's questions made about, you know, was Saddam actually 
uh, did he have weapons of mass destruction or not, or, 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 or retrospectively we can look at that as a just war or not a just war, whatever your opinion may be. When Jesus wages war, we know that it is just. We know that it is right. His judgments are right, and he wages war justly. This description of Jesus again echoes letters that he, that, he, that he has written to the church early in Revelation. The church in Pergamum, he says this, Repent, or I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. Jesus wages war, and it is right and true and just. Another characteristic we see up here in these opening verses, of, or these verses of 19 that we looked at today, in verse 12, his eyes are like the flame of fire. These burning, piercing eyes give us a picture of his righteous authority. He sees, knows everything. We get this picture again of him on his head are many diadems or crowns. Remember back, if you've been with us in the series in Revelation, you'll know that the beast had diadems and crowns to try to imitate the one who is just and true and right. It says here that Jesus has a name written that no one knows but himself. Back in the letter again to Pergamum, Jesus promises that he will give overcomers a new name that no one else knows. I've, I've said this before in sermons, but a name usually describes very well the inner essence of someone, of who they are. And Jesus, as a faithful and true witness, He's the only one that can give such names. The name that we will receive when we're in glory will be completely apt to us because He knows us. He sees everything, knows everything, so the name that we receive will be completely correct. He's the only one that can give such name justly. John goes on to elaborate on this idea a little bit in verse 13, where Jesus, the name by which He is called, is the Word of God. And, and, and again, John is going back even to the gospel that he wrote himself when he said in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What he's saying here again is Jesus is the revelation of God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Don't look anywhere else. Look at Jesus. He is the perfect image of God. So, finally, just on this part, look at the beginning of verse 13. Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. In this, his blood or the blood of his or the, or the blood of his enemies. If you skip down to verse 13, or 15, he says this. Verse 15 of chapter 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
Now, that's significant. That's a quote from Psalm 2, actually. And the quote from Psalm 2, the Hebrew used there means break, not rule. It says here, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And, and the Hebrew used in Psalm 2 means break. Why the change? Why, why the change here in Revelation 19 compared to Psalm 2? It actually comes from the Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and, and it has been changed slightly in the New Testament, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's what it means here in the Greek, in the New Testament. He will rule them. Sounds strange to us in our ears to think that a shepherd would rule with a rod of iron. That, that sounds strange to us, I think, mainly because, and I'm, I'm taking a guess here, I'm, I'm going to throw it out here, and I could be wrong if you, I don't think the majority of us ha, have done much shepherding. I'll just put that out there. Probably none of us have done much shepherding when the sheep have been in ultimate danger. Remember, the picture of shepherds that we have and the reality of a shepherd in Old Testament, New Testament times are quite different. The, 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 the image that some of us have of shepherding is, is shepherds wandering around the fields, possibly playing a harp the odd time, uh, you know, lying back, enjoying the sky, and, and just having a good old time. That is not the reality of a first century or an Old Testament shepherd. A good shepherd both guides and protects the sheep from their enemies. If you remember, the ultimate shepherd in the Bible in the Old Testament was King David. When David volunteers to fight Goliath, this is what he tells Saul. Your servant used to keep the sheep for his father, and when, he, when, and when there came a lion or a bear, not many of them about like the morns, I'm just saying, but for any of us who've been sitting in here thinking, well, I actually did do a bit of shepherding, John. You don't know. Not many lions, not many bears in the morns, just saying, right? When a bear or a lion came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him, delivered it out of his mouth, and if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard. David was a psychopath. Caught a lion by his beard and struck and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. Okay, fair enough. So when we hear that Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron, it means that he will protect his sheep from their enemies, and he will make sure that they do not be overcome. A shepherd destroys the enemies of the sheep. So it is quite appropriate, actually, to translate the word brick with a rod of iron. A good shepherd not only guides, not only feeds, but protects the sheep.
And that's what we're being told will happen with King Jesus. Folks, just as a side note, just as a side note, elders are called to do the same. Elders are under-shepherds of King Jesus. That means that myself, Ali, and Marcus are called not only to guide, not only to feed, but also to protect the sheep. And sometimes that, I'm, I'm just going to be really honest, sometimes that doesn't go down well. Sometimes that's not overly popular with those whom we are protecting the sheep from. But that's what we're called to do. We are called to protect the sheep from wolves and lions and bears who would seek to destroy the people of God. Verse 15 concludes by saying, Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. This is the same image that is used at the end of, of chapter 14. Jesus is going to do the trampling. He himself is the destroyer of God's enemies. So what we see is Jesus coming in judgment. This picture of Jesus here avenging. He is a conquering king. And what this tells us is that he sees all, he does right, and he rules justly. Just as a, another aside, look at, if you've got a Bible in front of you, please, he sums this up at the end of, in, in, in verse 16 when he says this, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And that is a synopsis, that's a summary of all that's just been said, of who King Jesus is. This is his nature. Right, now, just for your own personal help, if you ever want to justify getting a tattoo, there it is. Just saying, just putting that out there, just to help you. If you ever want to justify getting a tattoo, Jesus has a na the name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, written on his thigh. You can go away and you can look at the Greek. I'm just, just putting it out there, just to help you out for all those who you're feeling guilt and shame. All right? Just putting it out there. What does this mean for us, folks? What does it mean that Jesus sees all, Jesus knows all, Jesus judges rightly, and he judges truly? What does it mean for you and me? Well, it means this. It means a couple of things. One, it means he can be trusted. It means he can be trusted. You can trust Jesus. That's what it means. He is the only one who sees it all, only one who knows it all, only one who can judge rightly, and he can be trusted. That is the glorious good news of the gospel, folks. Because the reality is, you know you. You know how sinful you are. I know how sinful I am. And yet I am fully known. 
and fully loved and fully forgiven by the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. That should bring you the most assurance that you could ever wish for. To be fully known and yet fully loved. Second thing this means for us is this. If these things are true of Jesus, then what Jesus says is right. What Jesus says is right. And that means we've got to trust the Bible. Penned through the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Father and the Son, through the Spirit, we must trust the Scriptures. So when Jesus says things like, He is the only way to the Father, we trust that. Whatever the Scriptures say about our sexual ethic, we trust that. Whatever the Scriptures say, we trust it. So this is the very nature of Jesus. Sees all, knows all, judges rightly can be trusted, and we need to trust His Word. The second thing we see as we move into the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of, of chapter 20 are, are two battles described. Uh, what we see is two battles described. And the question arises here, are these two perspectives of the same battle, or are they two different battles? And what we've seen from Revelation, throughout Revelation, the sequence of events that happen in Revelation, do not, it does not automatically mean that these are actually the sequence of events that will happen in real time. There are many different perspectives given at many different times of the same thing. It does not necessarily imply that the fulfillment of those will follow the same sequence that we have here in Revelation. Indeed, several places in Revelation, the order of fulfillment has to be different from the order of the visions so that they can actually take place. So what we see here are similarities between the accounts, and what we see are some differences. But the, over, the overarching picture is this, Jesus defeats His enemies. And as I say, in a couple of weeks, maybe we'll get into the, the millennium, and if you're post-millennial, pre-millennial, a-millennial, whatever, I don't know how many millennials there are. But, but the overarching picture here is that Jesus will defeat all His enemies. That's it. But if you look at it, and if we want to figure out, like, are they two separate battles, or are they the same battle, look at the end of chapter 19. It says this, verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in the presence had done signs in which had been deceived, and those who had received the mark and the beast and those who worshipped the image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's the end of 19. And then it says the same again in, in chapter 20. And so my take on it is that, this is that th these are two different perspectives of the same battle. There are other things going on here as well, some, some Old Testament references in chapter 20 of Gog and Magog, and, and so that even brings it 
more clear that these are the same, these are different perspectives of the same battle. So both because of direct parallels to, and, and references to the same Old Testament prophecy in 19 and 20, what he's doing is giving us two perspectives of the same final battle. Revelation actually gives us at least five perspectives of this same battle. Chapter 14, 18 to 20, the trampling of the winepress. Chapter 16, 12 to 16, the bold judgments are said to complete the wrath of God. Chapter 17, 12 to 14, the kings and the beasts make war on the Lamb. So there you have, there's at least five different perspectives on this one final battle. So how does that relate to us? What, why, why does that matter? It matters because of this. God will completely, overwhelmingly, for all of time, defeat His enemies and our enemies. This is the ultimate final victory. This is the return of the king. And immediately just before these battles, before every perspective that you see in Revelation of this battle, before it, it looks as if all is lost. It looks as if it's, it's done. It looks as if the church has been defeated. It looks as if, you know, we're on a loser. Every single time, just before the final battle, that's the way it looks. It looks as if God's enemies have the upper hand. And then God steps in. You think about it through Scripture. This predominantly seems to be the way God works. Just right when you think it's over. Just right when the enemy thinks that they have victory. God steps in and defeats them. Look at the Red Sea. You have a load of Egyptians coming behind you. You think it's all over. You think it's done. There's no way, there's, there's no possible way. The sea parts. The people of God go through. His enemies are destroyed. Think of the cross. Think of the cross of Jesus Christ. Who on the day that Jesus was crucified thought had won? The enemies of God. They thought he had been defeated. They thought they had won the victory. They thought it was over. Only for God to raise Jesus from the dead and bring him forth from the tomb in glorious victory. This predominantly seems to be the way that God works. Just when we think it's over, he steps in, rescues his people, and destroys his enemies. I would love to go around the room and ask you, how many have you known the reality of that in your life? 
just when you think it's over, just when you think there's no way it can be possible, just when you think we're done, God steps in. God steps in, God delivers, and God defeats his enemies. Literally, I'm just I'm looking at Marcus, just caught Marcus's eye there. Literally, the amount of times that even in the story of Cornerstone Church that we have thought, listen, this is this, either in, in terms of provision, in terms of just a range of issues where we thought, no, no we're, this is not going to work, it's not going to happen. God has just stepped in. So maybe today you're, you're just in that place where he hasn't quite stepped in yet. I want to encourage you. Keep going. I want to encourage you to keep going. I want you to encourage you to keep pressing on. I want you to encourage you just to, to lean in because what I see in Scripture is this is the way that he predominantly works. At the moment you least expect it, bang. It'll happen. Keep going. Keep going. When all looks lost, when all looks hopeless, when all looks defeated, when do we need the Lord the most? Then. Keep going. So we see the nature of Jesus. We see the victory of Jesus over his enemies. But then we need to respond. Revelation was written to get a response from the church. Remember Revelation 1, 3, what's, what's the promise of reading? What's the promise of being in Revelation? I, maybe you haven't felt this as we've been through this series. I don't know, but maybe you have. Uh, the promise of reading Revelation and keeping its word is this, a blessing to the one who does so. A blessing. The one who reads and hears and heeds the words of this prophecy, they find a blessing. That's the promise. And so, just to really, just to bring this today text to a, a close. Chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, contains the key lesson for us. If there's nothing else today, this is the key for us. Chapters 20, 4 to 6 says this, Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Right, what's the question that every single one of us should be asking ourselves, right? Or, or, or the thing that every single one of us should be saying to ourselves right now? We should all be saying, I want to be blessed and I want to be holy, so how can I share in the first resurrection? That's what we should be saying. Now, Next time, I'll, I will get into a bit more detail on, on the technical side of this, but how do we be blessed and holy in the first resurrection? What is this first resurrection? And is it only for those who have been 
what? Martyred. I want to say, no, it's not. No, it is not just for those who have been martyred. The word soul. John says the word soul. The souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God who have not worshipped the beast. That's an interesting use of that phrase. Throughout Revelation, John uses imagery. And sometimes he uses bad Greek. And sometimes he uses bad grammar to get a point across. And what's actually happening here is when he says this word, when he uses this word soul, is he's going back to the Gospels again. And he is, let me give it to you from Mark, from John 12, 25 and Mark 8. He says this, whoever loves his you shout, you, you can maybe shout out the word that we usually use for this, but it's more accurately translated soul. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. Actually, what is being said here in Revelation 20 is the same thing. It is those, not necessarily those who have been martyred, but those who have given up their life in this world will receive the first resurrection. Jesus said to his followers, take up your cross. Follow me. What was Jesus saying? Was he saying take up a literal cross? No. What he was saying was die to yourself Die to your desires. Die to what you want. Follow what I want. Do what I want. And so it is those who do that that will experience the first resurrection. I will not suffer. It says the second death has no power over them. What is the second death? The second death is basically you die here and then you're eternally in hell. That's the second death. You want to be blessed and holy? You want to partake in the first resurrection? Lose your life. Simple as that. Jesus said, take up your cross. Die to yourself. Die to your desires. Die, die to what you want. And follow him. Folks, the proof of our knowing Jesus is not in a prayer that we prayed one time. The proof of our knowing Jesus is not that we put our hand up in a meeting at one time. The proof of our knowing Jesus is not that we walk to the front of a meeting at one time. The proof of our knowing Jesus is to the degree in which we are giving up our lives to follow Him. That is how we find life. 
Let me ask you, is your primary goal, is my primary goal in life to make my life here as comfortable as I can make it? Is my primary goal here in this life to make my children's lives as comfortable as I can make them? Is my primary goal here in this life to serve me and not serve Jesus? Let me be clear. The alternative to sharing in the first resurrection is the second death. Again, words that we don't like, words that we don't like to hear, words that we, words that should scare us. But are we giving up our life to follow Jesus? Folks, Christianity, following Christ is not a game. It's not a game. We're not playing church here today. It's like, you know, when you're away, you used to play, like, whatever it was you played. I don't know what you played. House or... I can't even remember what I played. It's that long ago. Uh, but we're not playing church here. This is not where we come and we just do the nice thing and we sing the nice songs and we, you know, it's not, that's not what this is about. This is literally life and death. Literally life and death. And Jesus was very clear. To find life, we need to lose our lives. It's very clear. Folks, we need help for that. We need the Holy Spirit to help us every single day of the week. We cannot do that on our own. It's impossible. So to summarize today, we see the nature of Jesus. He sees it all. He knows it all. He judges justly. Not the other character that I sang about at the start. Jesus. We see he has complete victory over his enemies. Every single one will be defeated at the exact time where he wants to defeat them. That is under his sovereignty. But this demands a response. And the response is our life. Our life. Let me pray for us, and I will pray that the Holy Spirit helps us. Father, we need your Spirit to help us to do this. We cannot do it on our own. We don't have the power. We don't have the capability. We need you. So we pray now that Holy Spirit, you would just come and work in our lives, help us, enable us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.